the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I am Rick Lee, and I am joined by Jason Reed. Unfortunately, our co-host Lee is occupied with other matters and couldn't make the podcast. We'll certainly miss her. Today, we are talking about fascism. But before we do that, as usual, we're going to take everybody's drink orders and hear what you're ranting or raving about. So let's start with you, Jason. I believe I'll have a mojito, and I'm going to rave with my brother. I spent some time visiting my brother, and I'm worried about the fact that he's an artist, and I really admire his ability to commit to a particular aesthetic and to see it through to its end, even at times when he's not getting a lot of response. His commitment to a particular vision is really admirable, plus he's an all-around really nice guy. I mean, brotherhood is kind of a political ideal, and I find brotherhood in my brother. Oh, nice. Speaking of brotherhood, we have our guest, a kind of brother from another mother, as they say, uh, Berto Toscano, who I've known for some time, a member of the Historical Materialism Editorial Board, the author of many books and articles, and just someone who I always like hearing from. So, Alberto, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? So, as it's early in the morning where I'm from, I'm going to have a grappa, which was a traditional morning drink of workers in Friuli and Veneto, where part of my family is from. It's difficult to find in an American or Canadian bar for that matter, but hope you can take care of that. And I'm ranting about a photo I saw yesterday whilst looking at my favorite daily, Il Manifesto, Italy's long-standing independent communist newspaper of a pre-deceased taxidermied creature, otherwise known as Silvio Berlusconi, looking ever more like a maleficent garden gnome and participating in the formation of one of the most grotesque governments that's ever been visited upon my country. That would need more than one grappa to be able to digest, but let's leave it at that. Even in the morning. Even in the morning, yeah. So, Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, I think in honor of Alberto's joining us, I will have a Negroni and not a Negroni sbagliato, which seems to be making the rounds on the interwebs these days. Today, I am ranting about the woman in my class who was on her telephone as I'm teaching yesterday. This is something in my 30-some years of teaching has never once happened, and yesterday it happened. And worse than that, she was not only talking, but she was laughing. Yeah, so I am ranting about her. I really just want to say, what in the actual fuck? How can you do – did she make like the one hold up a finger thing the whole time while she was talking? Like she was <laughs> just going to be done in a minute well, or – So she had earbuds that were wired and you know those ones where the microphone sort of hangs down a little bit and yeah. she was holding it up to her mouth. Okay. So she's trying to be quiet maybe or yes. at least make the appearance of being quiet. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So Jason, today I know we're talking about fascism, but how are we going to approach it? Yeah. So since the election of Donald Trump in 2016, the word fascism has moved from the historian's archives to the editorial pages of newspapers. The point of comparison has generally been, however, drawn from European history. Drawing our analogies and checklists from the trajectory of fascism in Europe obscures both the connection between what is happening now in American politics with the history of racism and racial capitalism in this country and the manner in which we might be seeing an entirely new form of fascism emerge. Alberto Toscano argues that to understand the contemporary form of fascism in the U.S., we're better served at looking at the history of black radicalism, from Black Panthers to the contemporary prison abolitionist movement. How does that history change what fascism means and alter understanding of fascism? Alberto, one of the definitions of fascism you discuss in the essays from George Padamore, the unity of race against class. How does race function as a way of mobilizing against class consciousness? And why does this mean that discussions of the white working class as a kind of stepping stone to a radicalized politics ultimately fail or are ultimately wrongheaded 
in discussions they have got, I don't even want to say this, but of supposed MAGA communism or other ideas that <laughs> the white working class can be mobilized in a left direction. I'm going to have to move to some real drinks. So, <laughs> so that definition from Padmore, I think, is from a book in the interwar period called How Britain Rules Africa. And Padmore had tried to articulate a notion of colonial fascism, as he called it, with reference to South Africa, Rhodesia, Trinidad, all sorts of other scenarios specific to the British Empire, in the conviction that, as he put it, wherever imperialism rules, Nazi methods are practiced. And he was articulating this definition and the study of what he called colonial fascism more or less contemporaneously with the writing and publication of W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America, mm. from which, of course, one draws so often and to such, unfortunately, timely effect, the definition of the psychological wages of whiteness in an argument which is, of course, an argument about the complex and violent work that went into soldering and soldiering the white rural and working classes of the South to a racial and supremacist program after the Civil War and onto and into the present. The reason for me to turn to these theorists, but of course, many more, C.L.R. James, later Cedric Robinson, Angela Davis and George Jackson play a large part, both in the argument and in the book where I'll try to flesh it out a little more. The reason was a discomfort, a dissatisfaction, I suppose, with the nature of the debate on fascism that, you know, has been present in academic scenes. And even actually, if you look back, kind of recurs at different points. Like you actually have debates about the new fascism, of course, in the 70s, but also under Reagan and Thatcher, you know, 1980s, there's a resurgence also, of course, in response to neo-fascist and white nationalist movements. But one of the problems for me has always been the problem of analogy and debates rage and continue to rage about the validity of those analogies, usually analogies to 1930s Germany, actually much more than Italy, which is maybe something we can go into later. And so I find the analogical mode partly necessary and inevitable as a kind of cognitive map to the present, but also deeply limiting because it takes fascism to be a static historical singularity rather than a process. And because it doesn't really allow us to confront what might be some of the mutant or recombinant natures of contemporary reactionary or violently reactionary politics. And the second aspect, which I think is really foregrounded by some of those discussions broadly in the domain of a black radical and third world anti-fascist tradition is the question of who is fascism fascism for, right? Or who perceives fascism as such? And one of the, I think, really potent insights that emerges, for instance, in the late 60s from, for instance, the letters exchanged between George Jackson and Angela Davis is a question of a kind of differential perception of fascism. That you might be, or we might be, or indeed we are, in spaces that reproduce and enact forms of politics that are recognizably fascistic, but do so in the context where, for significant swathes of the population, that form of state violence or racial terror doesn't obtain. So you can have a situation where you don't have a fascist regime in a classical or analogical sense of the term, but you can definitely encounter forms of racialized terror and political violence that have strong kinship and affinity and continuity with those histories of fascism. And that, of course, was the perspective of black political prisoners from which George Jackson mm -hmm. and Angela Davis reformulated these older discussions of fascism drawn from the history of the common turn. So I understand your point that fascism is not one thing. In that sense, it would share certain affinities, for example, with capitalism. Capitalism is an ever-changing, moving kind of beast. And yet I still know what its either structures are or its contours are. And so I know it is a something. And so I'm wondering if the analogies don't work, is there a something, some set of structures or something like that, that we can point to and say 1930s Germany is fascist and the United States today is fascist? Are there some affinities there that need the same label? I guess a different way of asking that question is, what does fascism add to our understanding that white supremacy doesn't already include? 
Mm-hmm. Well, maybe going to the last point. I was actually listening to a talk, a workshop at Sussex, I think, from a few days ago by Ruth Wilson Gilmore. And actually, it was an interesting discussion precisely about the question of fascism and white supremacy. And quite rightly, she noted that one of the virtues of the category and the analytic of fascism, however we might want to extend or reform it, is that forms of racialized political violence, of course, are not just generated in spaces with histories of white supremacy or Anglo settler colonialism. Some of the sharpest and some of the most urgent analyses of fascism pertain to contemporary India, for instance, I'm thinking of the work of Jairus Banerjee, but of course, of all sorts of movements and intellectuals that have mobilized against Modi. So in that case, you have an identitarian and suprematist, in this case, a Hindu suprematist project that are articulates itself via militias. I mean, in one sense, the analogies are to the ways in which Hindu nationalism was back in 20s and 30s also directly inspired or in dialogue with formations of fascism. Right. In Europe, the, you have the effort to turn the state into an instrument both for the affirmation of a dominant, in this case, not race in the Anglo-European sense, but definitely an ethnicized religious identity, let's say, and this dialectic between the state and militias or movements between forms of violence that are internal to classic repressive state apparatus, but also the tendrils and the prolongations of that in areas which are much more informal and quote-unquote spontaneous. Interestingly enough, actually, I talk about this briefly in that piece from a few years back in HM, uh, Notes on Late Fascism. Banerjee makes very interesting use of Sartre's critique of dialectical reason and the whole way of thinking of group formation there to think about a particular form of fascist collective, which is the one that forms around the pogrom, which of course is a term from the European, Central and Eastern European anti-Semitism and Judeophobia, but which he sees as being functionally similar to the kind of pogroms that were pushed by Modi and the Hindu right in India as well. You know, you don't want it to be like a kind of diagnostic manual, like if you've got eight out of these 10 things, you know, the pathology obtains, right? I don't think for the sake of historical or political analysis, the checklist is ideal. But I do think, of course, we think, right, with analogies, with family resemblances, and also with historical continuities or adjacencies and all of these enter into the picture as does because you brought up of course the relationship between fascism and capitalism the ways in which these are articulated to particular conjunctures of crisis there's also a level of systemic analogy that is not necessarily the analogy of something visible like the jackboots and the uniforms or whatever but of moments that have some of the same potentials however different these potentials are because We haven't just come out of a war where people knew how to kill on a mass basis. Capitalism operates in a very different way. The industrial working class is not what it was, etc., etc. So, like, the analogy is going to be very partial. But I do still think that a combination of a historical sensitivity and a sense of systemic processes does make discussion of fascism and of fascist potentials and tendencies and processes in the present useful Less so, I think, for the work of naming, which I also think is very limited. Like, I actually think, is Trump a fascist or not? It is not like the reason why I've been kind of working on these debates, but rather to think about what processes and what conjunctures and also what political challenges the various discussions of fascism named and what we can learn from them for the present. And in that sense... The naming aspect, the pejorative, the calling out, etc., is less what's at stake for me. I mean, I did find it really funny the other day when Biden used the formulation semi-fascist. Right. <laughs> and then I actually got out a wonderful book, which is the U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader by Bill Mullen and Christopher Viles, full of wonderful, you know, from a history of specifically U.S.-based discussion of anti-fascism. And there's a long piece from 1939 by CP USA leader William Z. Foster, where he systematically deploys the category of semi-fascism for the states. And I thought, <laughs> aha! And I was disappointed, I must say, about the conspiratorial abilities of the far right, that this wasn't all over the place. I was like, come on! Like He's using a concept directly formulated by an American communist. Aren't you going to go to town on this? You know? I'm not sure, Alberto, they have such a long bibliography. It might show up in your Google searches for Marxist.org, but maybe not, maybe not much else. 
I like your term conjuncture. And so let me pull on one of those conjunctures. And that is, if I understood you correctly, while in many state forms, there is a state monopoly on violence, what seems unique to fascism is that it is both, on the one hand, a monopolization of violence, and on the other hand, a kind of racial popularization of that violence at the same time. And so it's both military and paramilitary at one and the same time. And the conjuncture of that monopolization, along with the sort of popularization of violence, does really seem to be one of the main features of fascism. I think that's really crucial in at least two ways. One is that it allows us to think both historically and analytically about the very complex entanglements between fascism and both the material realities, but also the fantasies and imaginaries of settler colonialism. Mm. You know, what is a settler, right? Like a settler is in a sense a petty sovereign that can exercise a form of political and a form of conquering violence with, in the back of them, the power of a state, which doesn't necessarily encompass their activities, but of which they either feel themselves or actually are a prolongation, like a prosthesis. And eventually the state will come to include its tendrils and appendages into some kind of organic unity, but there's a very blurry border, and it's precisely a border or a frontier where all of this happens. And of course, there's infinite amount of historical work on the ways juridically, imaginatively, etc., that especially Nazi Germany, but also to other extents, other forms mm-hmm. of fascism, imagine themselves in that settler mode, imagine themselves as violently creating frontier conditions, and indeed, right. settlements and so on, the East for Germany, Italy's wars in Ethiopia, etc., were in that mode. So that's one angle, which I think is really significant. And I think it really gets at what you were rightly noting, which is this ambiguous and shifting relationship between the monopolization and then the delegation or the proliferation of violence. And the second point, which is interrelated, came to mind reading a couple of fabulous interviews by Foucault on this revival of films about fascism and Nazism in the 70s, on which there were extremely intense and politicized conflicts in France, like so Liliana mm. Cavani's The Night Porter, Pasolini's Salot, etc. And Foucault is extremely sharp about the limitations of this eroticization of fascism and Nazism. But he says, well, one reason why these films get made, even though what they depict is kind of ridiculous or bears very little relationship to the actual libidinal economy of fascism. One reason is that they do get at something quite significant, which is that fascism and Nazism gave people a lot of power, allowed thousands hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people to exercise Mm. forms of libidinally intense state-like domination and license, both in the way that, of course, a colonial administrator or settler could, but also within the supposed boundaries of the classic European nation state. And this is also the insight that's very present in the work that a wonderful book, which I hope is being translated into English, maybe already has, by very fine historian of Nazism in France, Johann Chaputot who wrote a book about Nazism and management Mm -hmm. called Free to Obey. And he's very illuminating in arguing that actually contrary precisely to this idea that fascism is this or centralization, the creation of completely seamless machine-like state that actually, and reflexively so, like quite explicitly, the Nazis and specifically the SS gave people a lot of freedom. You know, this is what was called like mission tactics, right? You know, there's objectives, you carry them out however you want. And we know what the objectives were. And so, you know, it's a chilling thought, but freedom, autonomy, license, and the enjoyment thereof are constitutive, I think, of that apparatus. And you can also see why regimes that had an affinity or contiguity, let's say just in Europe, with fascism recoiled at times from those possibilities from that kind of permanent militia type element because it was viewed as too disruptive or something that could get out of hand. So that's also a dynamic, whether it's like the Night of Long Knives or Mussolini's effort to rein in so-called left fascists. But if you take Portugal or Spain, you know, these are situations where you had militia movements, the Falange and so on, that, that imagined themselves explicitly in that mode. 
but which the state, this authoritarian, dictatorial, hyper-conservative state, nevertheless tried to rein in because, of course, there's a real risk involved in allowing the movement to bypass or exceed the state. That, to me, actually is in many ways possibly one of the crucial dynamics. And I think it's also interesting, then, if we think back to the situation of contemporary United States, right? Actually, those imaginaries, but also material realities of delegated violence are massive in the states compared to other polities. Uh, you know, whether it's the autonomy of directly elected sheriffs that run their far-right conferences and have huge amounts of ability to organize their local spaces... Uh, mm -hmm. you know, or the, just the imaginary of the militia itself, that's not present in the same way, let's say, in a continental European context, where actually, most of these movements are operating very much through the state as electoral movements with very little street or non-state dimension, except for the very far right, like Casa Pound in Italy, you know, where you have these kind of much more non-state formations. So yeah, I think that to me is a very significant aspect. And I think without that dimension of the delegation of violence between the kind of molar state and the molecular movement or whatever, like then I think it's maybe more difficult to talk about fascism, which is also why, for instance, today, people who are querying the validity of speaking about fascism in the case of Putin's Russia, interestingly point out that one of the things that Putin is very wary of doing even though there's a lot of far-right and racist and fascistic movement in Russia, but they're very much on a tight leash because the last thing that they want is a kind of mass politicization. So they were even curtailing spontaneous pro-war demonstrations because they were spontaneous. That, that was the problem. Like You can have the choreographed march, but you don't want national Bolsheviks or Orthodox Christian fascists just doing their own thing. You can use them to engage in forms of, like, if you think of all of the assassinations, if you think of all the beatings, etc. There's clearly a relationship, but there's also an effort to rein it in. And I think that's a very interesting symptomatic dynamic. Hey, listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. Earlier you mentioned, I think it's really important, this idea of a differential fascism, that if you're white, say, in the U.S., you may not perceive the levels of terror and harassment that are going on. But it seems to be what you're saying now. It's not only you not perceive what's going on, but in some cases, in some instances, you may actually see an increase of a freedom to manage, as you put it, or freedom to discipline, right? I mean, people have talked about the appeal in the US for Trump amongst what are sometimes referred to as the lumpen bourgeoisie, right? The sort of owners of small businesses who mm. want to see a removal of labor protections, of other forms of restrictions, and the sense that differential fashion to some people looks like an increased restriction, harassment by state forces, and so on. And for others, it's not just the absence of that, but they actually see an increased freedom, freedom to participate in harassment on one hand, as you mentioned, shares, but also freedom to be able to restrict and curtail labor, workers, and so on. So the differential is not just not everyone sees the fascism, but some people are gaining liberties, freedoms, while other people are losing even the ability to sustain their lives. No, I think that's right. And I think, again, we still labor under an image kind of stereotype of fascism, which is the stereotype of the totalitarian state machine. And of course, if that's the case, then not only is there very little fascism around, but there can be very little fascism around because it would be impossible to graft upon or merge with the profound effects that neoliberalism, very broadly speaking, 
has had on the production and practice of subjectivity. In some sense, modulating the freedom of the entrepreneur with the freedom of the manager, the manager of property, of borders, etc., is one thing. But the very idea that contemporary lumpen bourgeois subject could be enlisted or interpolated into a project of disciplined bureaucratic mm-hmm. submission is laughable. But the thing is that that wasn't just, I mean, obviously that element was present, but that wasn't just what was at stake in fascism and Nazism. So I do think that kind of historical analysis, like in the work of Chaputot, but so many others, that brings out that dimension of what was already present in the fascisms that we tend to analogize with is very significant. It's significant because it allows us to see that the promise of more power and more freedom, a very specific kind of freedom for some to do certain things, etc., was part and parcel of what was at stake. And it also means that the psychological or psychoanalytic explanations of fascism that foreground just the desire for submission are insufficient because they're not confronting the desire for license or for that combination. You know, I obey in order to have within my jurisdiction or within my space, within my little zones of license, then I can do what I will. You know, whether that zone is a patriarchal home or a frontier or a factory, that is very much what is being promoted. I find it really striking in that regard that, for instance, in Italy, one of the things that the far right is pushing is actually a very Americanized notion of personalized securitization, which is basically varieties of a kind of stand your ground law. Very big in the propaganda of Fratelli d'Italia and, and the Lega and other bits of the far right is this, you know, it's like gun ownership for people who own shops. Even though actually there's way less of a culture of gun ownership or of that mode in Italy, it's almost like they're really pushing it and it fits that model. It fits that model of we back you, but you you are the little arm sovereign. And I was going to say, in a sense, what you're pointing to is that a classical liberal capitalism is not the same as neoliberal capitalism. And one of the hallmarks, then it seems where you're going, is that neoliberalism provides fascism with a way to be totalitarian without the state being totalitarian. In other words, if one could now informally deputize the shopkeeper to own a weapon and keep control, if one can deputize the entrepreneur to police their workers, if one can deputize the crowd at a MAGA rally to take care of the protesters, then the state doesn't have to any longer be totalitarian because we gladly take on its work. Yeah, it's a form of economization, no? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's a sort of leaner form of violence. I mean, I was really struck. Outsourced violence, yeah. Outsourced, yeah. I was really struck by the juridical variant of this before the Mm -hmm. Supreme Court's repeal of Roe, what was happening in Texas. So creating the situation in which instead of having the state, including the local state legislature, operate this, you create this evil but brilliant legal mechanisms whereby you have these legal bounty hunters who go and like sue a poor woman or a clinic who is trying to take care of their reproductive health or whatever, but you do it in this personalized way. So it's a private citizen that sues, but also polices and represses and curtails another private citizen. And so there's also economization in that, which is quite staggering, I find. And and I guess that's where it's interesting, also from the standpoint of thinking about forms of resistance or countering these things, how, what kind of affordances, what kind of capacities are already present in juridical and state and repressive apparatuses that allow these processes to operate. In a way, there is in the United States a remarkable presence of juridical and institutional mechanisms that allow and have allowed that kind of delegation and economization of violence along capitalist and class and racialized lines of all sorts in a way that's not necessarily the case elsewhere, where actually what's more at stake is fascism almost just at the ideological level, like the continuity of the nostalgics, or the continuity of the fact that you know Italy now has a prime minister and a president of the Senate who just are people who 
grew up as fascists, had street battles with the left, who put up Mussolini posters. Like It's more at that level almost than at the kind of granular institutional level. Whilst I think in the U.S., there is a legislative and juridical kind of infrastructure that allows a lot of these processes to operate whilst remaining within the bounds of a kind of status quo. And, and I'm struck by both the tactical and strategic ability of the right and the far right in the U.S. to operate through these channels in a way that does not seem to be open to their counterparts. center of both your long historical view of fascism going back to Reconstruction and your more global view looking at colonialism is really the role of race. And I guess I want to ask you to talk about the intersection between race or racial capitalism and this idea of fascism as a more ongoing process rather than a specifically European phenomena. So I guess it's the connection between race and fascism that I want to sort of talk more about. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess the first point is maybe to continue what we were talking about earlier, right? What drew me to some of these rather neglected discussions of fascism amongst black radical and third world theorists in the 20th century and one of the things that I thought really vital was the way in which, put it somewhat paradoxically, fascism preceded itself, to think of historical formations and political conjunctures in which precisely what we were talking about, the delegation of violence and then its concomitant centralization in terms of ethno-nationalist or ethno-religious projects of anti-democratic dominance and hierarchy, etc., operated long before the emergence of the movements, well, first of all, of the movement that called itself fascist in, in Italy, and then its various kin in the 20s and 30s. And, you know, that's where I was struck by the way in which Amiri Baraka points out the presence of fascism as an optic or as an analytic in Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. Very briefly, it's a massive book, but he does foreground this question of racial fascism. And Baraka underscores this, and he says, well, actually, here you have not just the unity of race against class, the enlistment of white rural populations into a project that actually includes their own subalternity or domination, but also the compensation of the psychological wages, etc. But then also the role that both local and external finance and capital have in this formation and the role of the state and so on and so forth. And so that you have those elements. And I think there's more to that too, right? A lot of scholars have pointed out, as I said before, the ways in which colonialism and settler colonialism were explicitly the stakes of fascism and of Nazism in particular, right? You know, how can, in this world that's been closed in a sense, that's been occupied and colonized, formed by certain capitalist relations, how can we anachronistically, so to speak, impose and revive a 19th century colonial imperialist project in the Eurasian landmass? How does one do that? And how in doing so, for instance, thinking of James Whitman's book, Hitler's American Model, one can draw on those juridical traditions. So Nazi jurists sat around and looked at U.S. legislation on First Nations, Native Americans, and said, oh, well, you know, how can we have people who are nationals but not citizens? Because that's what we're trying to do. And in <laughs> fact, it was, yeah, it was striking too, because initially they were like, well, let's look at the Indian Acts, etc., because actually Jim Crow apartheid is like too much. We can't quite handle this, etc. This is, you know, just at the beginning, of course. Striking. So in that sense, those histories juridical, military, legislative, right. colonial capitalism, racial capitalism were explicitly at stake, explicitly the models <laughs> that large swathes of the fascist and Nazi intelligentsia and technicians are trying to replicate under very different conditions, you know, whilst also, of course, continuing colonial projects in Africa, and in Asia and elsewhere. So I do think that that is key, even though, even though that does not mean that this is the same thing as or only included within a specific lineage of white supremacy. Their 
can be fascism with no white people in the room. It's not limited to that specific Anglo-American or even European history. If we think of it in terms of a kind of ethno-identitarian racial mm-hmm. terror with a militia element that can have it in other contexts. But then that leads me to wonder, to the extent that, as you quote Padmore saying, fascism is the unity of race against class, then it seems like it's possible for there to be fascism without a state at all. Fascism is not a label we would attach necessarily to a state, but to a kind of politics that then certainly a state can deploy, take up, stand behind, support, and capitalize on. For sure. And I think that gap, disjunction between fascism and the state is significant enough that, for instance, a lot of scholars and analysts of Nazi Germany pointed out how key intellectuals and jurists in Germany actually thought that what they were trying to generate was not a state. Mm. In fact, that Nazism as a racial movement and project taken to its ultimate consequences, in as much as it imagined itself in view of these rather hallucinatory visions of archaic German law, etc., was a kind of sui generis, withering away of the state for the sake of the race. That actually the state was this Roman abstract or Judeo-Roman entity. There's a whole obsession about abstract norms and abstract laws as opposed to the law of the blood, the ethnic norm, etc., which governs especially Nazi thought. And actually, and there is where Italian fascism and Nazism are very much at odds, because of course, whether in Mussolini or the Gentile or just about every Italian fascist, the idea of the state remain absolutely core. There is actually no, right. that militia or that delegation of violence doesn't operate in the same way, not least because, of course, notwithstanding all of the racist and racializing discourse, it doesn't operate in the same way that it operates in, in Nazi Germany. It's not something that can bypass the state. Whilst instead, right. you know, that was a point that Franz Neumann makes in Behemoth, Hannah Arendt picks up on this, that there's this idea of Nazism as a non-state, as a non-state state, which of course is also a formulation in Lenin, but meant in a radically different sense. And (laughs) that was also why someone like Carl Schmitt eventually fell out of favor with a dominant group of jurists also linked to the SS, etc., because he had this, what was for them, this kind of misplaced Roman Catholic fetishism of the state. And Mm. and their view was actually the state was something together with Roman law that had to be bypassed. It was an instrument for the movement and an instrument for the racial project, but just an instrument. There was nothing in the state itself that was to be celebrated except as a conduit for this racial movement project. And, And so in that sense, yes, Thinking of fascism solely as a regime or solely or principally Mm. as a state has its limitations. You know, you also have in the nebula galaxy of far-right formations, there's a lot of anti-state animus of various sorts. You know, some of a more neoliberal entrepreneurial variety, some of a more anarcho-fascist kind of, we will remove the state and then just have these tribal, territorial, racial enclaves, which is one of these imaginaries that operates, of course, in the United States in a way that it'll never operate in continental Europe because there's just no way of imagining that. Right. So I think that gap is a very significant one. And again, Mm -hmm. to think of fascism principally in the image of the all-consuming, all-controlling totalitarian state that turns us into cogs is not to get either what it was or what it could be. So since you mentioned Lenin and two different visions of the withering away of the state, uh, it's not going to be about (laughs) Lenin so much. As you do. Yeah. I think one of the things that comes up in the Boston Review piece that I think is very interesting is that one of the things that the present seems to lack in terms of a checklist, if we're going by sort of things to look forward to define fascism, is we don't really have fascism as a kind of saving capitalism from communism. We don't have fascism as a counter-revolution because a counter-revolution presupposes a revolutionary moment prior to it. So you talk in the piece about Angela Davis defining fascism as a sort of preventative counter-reform, or I guess I'm interested in the way in which the current moment of fascism, though it evokes the specter of a far left, whether it be in the form of anti-fascist or in the form of you know critical race theory, it evokes a specter of it, but it can't really be seen as a real response to left mobilization. It's a sort of 
fascist counter-revolution without a necessary revolution. So I wonder if you could talk about that aspect of contemporary fascism, its ability to function without, as has so classically been the case, a sort of left-wing movement to react against. Hmm. Yeah. We, of course, in many ways, rightly think of fascism as a counter-revolutionary project, at the same time as even classical theoreticians and analysts of fascism and historians indeed point out that also the timing even of the original variants thereof is is interesting and, and perhaps important. So fascism, properly speaking, as in the movements that we qualify as such, comes onto the scene after the defeat of German and Italian revolutionary movements of the late teens and early 20s. Defeats which, in the case of Germany, for instance, are operated by a combination of a social democratic government and de facto nationalist proto-fascistic militias, the Freikorps, murder of Liebknecht and, and Luxembourg, etc. And the, all those militia formations are vital in the case of the Aditi in Italy, in the case of the Freikorps in Germany and so on. Now, preventive counter-revolution, I think, is a very interesting formulation by both Davis and Herbert Marcuse in the context of the late 60s. And it's in that context of both in the US and, and actually in all sorts of other contexts, right? Like Japan and Italy, etc., that debates around the new fascism are generated. What is at stake now, I think, is quite complex to think through. So I find the extent of the projection of communist fantasies onto liberal enemies really perplexing, right? Whether it was the t-shirts or badges with Obama and Stalin like <laughs> uh, sure. 15 years ago or whatever, or those grotesque videos that Christopher Rufo makes about critical race theory would always have that image of Angela Davis and Herbert Marcuse like in the same image. Like that's the ground zero of all of the evil. And it's also that kind of fabulation, you know, the German Jewish communists and the black woman have together devastated the minds of millions and so on and so forth. So I think that kind of persistence of anti-communism in the absence of communists is very symptomatic. And how to read it, I don't think is at all straightforward. Part of it is that those are the rhetorical antagonistic kind of reflexes of a far-right tradition that is continuous. And part of it is that it's one of the only ways to mobilize against liberalism and reformism and so on. But Alberto, now I'm suddenly struck by the Foucault text that you were referencing earlier, I think becomes relevant here again, mm -hmm. because one of the things I've been thinking about for the past six years or so is the laughter present at almost all Trump rallies. Mm. And I see that laughter as a kind of expression of a newfound power that the MAGA right has found power over people like us. We're the elites, you know, we're the ones who have been in charge of everything, and now we're the ones who are being laughed at. And so I think this projection also comes out of this, you had a nice phrase, uh, the libidinal economy of this newfound power, that there's now is a projection of, you know, everyone's a communist who's not us, precisely in order for me to express my power on top of them and increase the pleasure potential. Mm, yeah. I mean, fascism is fun. Yeah. I think that's yeah. the other aspect, right? And also, and I was thinking of some of the insights that Leo Lowenthal and Norbert Guterman come out in that book, Prophets of Deceit. Oh, yeah. And one of the insights of the book is this peculiar mechanism whereby you enjoy your own fantasies by projecting them as the intentions of your nemesis. <laughs> Typical variant of this recently, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greene, like, uh, you know, they want to kill us. In fact, they're already killing us. It's like, okay, where exactly does that come from? You know, the liberal death squad, like that kind of sort of fabulation. And, and it's quite telling because there is a real jouissance in playing that out and in playing out the superpower and the insidiousness of your putative enemies, that they have a plot, which of course to most people on the left is both laughable and depressing because it's clear like that the other side's tactical and strategic abilities seem to far surpass one's own on this obviously massively lopsided playing field, so to speak. 
I think we've been done a big disservice by a historical tendency, obviously very present in popular culture, but also in academic writings, to think that the evils of fascism and Nazism were correlative with like a stony face Moloch of untold systematic violence, therefore missing right. out all of those disturbing but nevertheless very present aspects including of fun and humor and license. There's a wonderful book that I was reading recently by a German historian, Dagmar Herzog, called Sex After Fascism. And it's super interesting because she makes a very powerful argument that the 60s, so if one thinks of kind of like German 60s sexual revolution and the political left and the recovery of text by Wilhelm Reich in a kind of liberationist moment, they generated this image of Nazism as a purely repressive, conservative, sexually blinkered, etc. movement, which she shows quite clearly is just not the case. And she says, actually, it was a movement of massive incitement and disavowal of that incitement, but which involved promotion of adultery, of underage sex, but, you know, within the context of, of course, the racial project and right. the projection of everything that was wrong and dirty and sex on, you know, the racialized Jewish other, etc. But in the context of actually something that was much closer to that Foucauldian idea of like a productive or an incitement of sex rather than its repression. And she makes a very compelling argument about all of the problems that come into having this very selective memory. And she actually argues the selective memory was that because people were rebelling really against the conservatism of the post-war period. Right. And the post-war period was a period in which the former, either former Nazis or people who obviously lived through the regime, imposed a new form of kind of religiously Christian, Democrat, or Catholic kind of policies that were super repressive, mm -hmm. actually against what they thought was the loose character of Moors under Nazism. But then by 68, people are rebelling against the 50s as though they were rebelling against the 30s. That's, in a sense, the kind of argument. And it made me think about, yeah, what's lost, for instance, in one's responses and reactions to contemporary phenomena by imagining them by an analogy with a very truncated version. I mean, an Italian fascism even more so, which rhetorically always had this dimension of, I mean, all you have to do is to watch a speech by Mussolini, like satire and grotesque humor and insult. I mean, right. you know, and there was a, a whole kind of enjoyment dimension, which was very, very, very present. So the idea that fascism is humorless is just unfortunately deeply wrong. Like Franco is Spain or Salazar is Portugal, yes. But unfortunately, part of what mobilized people in fascist and Nazi regimes were forms of, at times, very explicit enjoyment. One of the things that Herzog shows very well in that Sex After Fascism book was actually the ways in which the official publication of the SS, etc., were constantly making fun of regressive Christian conservative mores and prudishness and so on and so forth. And I think we have to keep that in mind instead of thinking that this is just something that was only discovered the day before yesterday, like on Twitter, that <laughs> somebody could be a far-right, racist, transphobic activist and still enjoy themselves or engage mm -hmm. in satire or irony. It's like, well, actually, that's been part of these formations all along, partly for the psychoanalytic reasons that various people have tried to puzzle out, you know. Adorno and Horkheimer yeah. or Lovental and Guterman or, you know, etc., right? That libidinal dimension is not something that you can just remove. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So, Alberto, I see in your project two things really that have come up in this conversation. One is a criticism of thinking through analogy 
and the sense in which trying to make analogous connections between a fascism in the past and a fascism in the future kind of leaves us always waiting to find that last item on the checklist and saying, oops, not fascist yet because boots aren't high enough and so on. And then the second thing I see you doing, and you quote Genet on this idea of white people have to expand their imagination to understand what the Black Panthers have been saying about fascism in the U.S., so both a kind of moving from analogy, but also an expansion of our imagination to begin to imagine and see what is actually happening in the present. So I guess the question I want to ask is what in terms of the analogies to past forms of fascism do you find most harmful? And we've talked a little bit about some of this in terms of like waiting for a totalitarian state that's never going to come. But what do you find most harmful in terms of the analogies that people are holding on to about the past? And what do you think is most necessary in terms of our expanding our imagination or our cognitive map to understand what's happening in the present? Yeah, I think in some ways we've probably already touched on it. I think on the negative side of the ledger, the identification of fascism with a Moloch or machine state and the idea of fascism as the monstrous endpoint of a kind of barbarian hyper-bureaucracy, which doesn't speak, I think, either to the actual historical reality of fascist states, which mm -hmm. you know are probably best grasped by that Deleuze and Guattari quip about capitalism, a machine that works by breaking down, well, until it really breaks down, that captures some of those histories. I think in terms of, if not the analogy, but at least the kind of processes that I do think are worth thinking through in relation or resonance with the present, is that dimension of delegated, whether really delegated or imagined as delegated violence on the edges of legitimate monopolized state forms and along racialized or, or identitarian lines that, again, need not be flush with histories of white supremacy and can take place in all sorts of other contexts. And I think for me, and I think that's kind of come out more through our conversation, for which I'm grateful since I still have to put in the final revisions to this book, but I think it's the way that fascism operates again, both materially and at the level of fantasy on the porous borders of that process of the monopolization of violence, kind of the monopolization and the delegation, which I think is very significant, because I think that's also where its attraction lies, the attraction of having license, like gun license, but you know, license also <laughs> in the sense that's more libidinal, licentiousness as well as license, which right, I, I was think just thinking is... That potent also because it allows ambiguity between submission and domination, the subjective and libidinal ambiguity, which is quite key. I think already in the 30s, whether it's in Eric Fromm or other members of the Frankfurt School or in Marcuse's notion of repressive desublimation, mm -hmm. that notion, right, that fascist is an authoritarian rebel, is an authoritarian who likes to live and imagine themselves as a rebel, but for the sake of the imposition onto others and onto themselves of a kind of authority, hierarchy, closure, identity, I think is quite significant to me and perhaps something that is not sufficiently thought through in the present. And so I think that relationship between the material and ideological force of fascist or fascist-like projects in enlisting people as agents, again, like the fascist movement is the principle and they are the agents, but there is agency in that. There is agency, there is license, there is freedom. And I think the way that then that also links up to a kind of fascist character, which was, I think, the original title of the authoritarian personality, if I'm not mistaken. And thinking about how those mechanisms work in very specific conjunctures to exacerbate and operate within particular crises is a very significant task. Well, in a completely non-fascist way, the bartender has issued last call. And so <laughs> while we're waiting for our last drinks, let me just remind you that we can delegate some power to you by means of asking for your support for us on our Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. <laughs> Go there. You could support us at any level. <laughs> and so in a semi-authoritarian way, I have taken it upon myself to call a cab. Alberto, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise. Thank you both. Yeah.